episode 181 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 6th of June 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hola. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Will, what is SIGROC? Well, good question. You know how sometimes you need to debug I squared C and you can't really afford a very expensive oscilloscope for, for doing this sort of thing? Do I ever? <laughs> <laughs> What you do is you go on eBay and you look for a Sally logic analyzer and you look at a Sally logic analyzer and they're hundreds of pounds and you poke around on eBay a bit more and you find a Chinese knockoff one for like tens of pounds and you think, well, how bad could it be? So I'll get one of those. Well, the answer is actually pretty good. And you can do some decent logic analyzing on a device, but the software is non-existent. Uh, you have to use the official Sally software, which, yeah, you know, you could argue is not really in the spirit of things. It does work with some of these logic analyzers, but um, yeah, perhaps you shouldn't use it. Well, Sigrock is a free and open source alternative to the Sally um, analyzer software, and seems like it's actually a bit better. Uh, it can support higher refresh rates than the Sally software does. It's got some really nice protocol decoder frameworks in there. You can write a Python script to decode the, the ones and zeros of a protocol into something a bit more human readable. And I've uh, linked to a blog post by Big Dan, who has used the um, Sally software and Sigrock as well. And yeah, his conclusion is that this is a pretty decent solution for not very much money. So yeah, next time you need to poke around looking at ones and zeros, going over a serial link or something like that, then I would recommend trying um, a cheap logic analyzer and Sigrock. What? Is the actual practical purpose of this for those of us who don't know what? <laughs> I was going to ask exactly that question. I think he's making this up. He has no use for this whatsoever. He's just doing it to look intelligent. <laughs> okay, let, let's take a, a worked example here. If you've got a microcontroller, let's say an ESP32, and you want to talk to some flash storage, which is connected over uh, an I2C bus or an SPI bus. Uh, and you do this via like, three or four pins. You've got power, you've got data plus or minus, and maybe some sort of clock signal. And for whatever reason, you're getting really poor throughput or the thing just won't read, yet you've checked the code time and time again. You've checked the data sheet of the device that you're trying to talk to. Everything looks like it should just work, and yet it doesn't, and you can't work out what's going on. What you would normally do is look at the logic traces, the, the highs and lows coming out of those pins to make sure that they're in sync, that they're sending the right patterns, that they're sending the right commands. And to do that, you might use a, a, an oscilloscope and you could see on the screen the highs and lows coming, the pulses coming up and down, and you could twiddle around the various knobs on your uh, oscilloscope and you could freeze it and you could count you know, how many highs and how many lows there were and get a good idea about what it's doing. Or you could use a logic analyzer with some decoders in there and it would decode it and give it to you in English. This is the equivalent of using a plugin in Wireshark to sniff, uh, I don't know, SNMP traffic or DHCP traffic or something like that. So it will do the the decoding and tell you what's going on and what conversations are happening and whether or not things make sense. Are you secretly building a synth or something? <laughs> no, I, I, I would struggle with the analogness of it all. It sounds great fusing on a parallel port or serial port on an Amiga, <laughs> which I must say have become cool now. There's one in Stranger Things. 
I am not watching 12 fucking hours of that or whatever it is. It's about 20 hours or something. I watched the first one. It was shit. Not watching anymore. <sighs> but Gen Z love it. It is good, though. Well, I'm a geriatric millennial, as I've said before, and I don't give a shit about the uh, nostalgia. It's worn thin on me. Plenty of other good stuff to watch. All right, Graham, mouse pointer warping with Warp D. I think I've mentioned it before, but I use an expensive keyboard for typing on, and it's uh, called a keyboardio. I I think we need to include a picture, because that is a stretch that that is a keyboard. It's (laughs) the side of an accordion as well. It's the buttons on an accordion. I do love it. It's pricey, but I do love it. It's open source, and, and it's running on an Arduino inside it. And one of its best features in the Arduino firmware is mouse control. Now, you can kind of hold down a keyboard shortcut and then use whatever keys you define to move the mouse cursor around, and you can set acceleration and things. But there's a couple of other modes that it can also support for kind of better mouse control from your keyboard without having to go to your trackball and mouse, which I find really handy. And one of the best is a grid mode. And basically, with one shortcut, the mouse pointer will jump to a quadrant on the screen. You press it again, and it will go to the same quadrant within that quadrant. So you can, within just a few presses, you can get almost exactly to the area you need with your mouse cursor without ever having to use the mouse or the arrow keys or whatever you use for dragging the mouse around. But this feature is specific to the firmware running on the Arduino in my keyboard. Now, what this discovery is, is a daemon version of that exact functionality that you run in the background. I've installed it and tried it with X11, but it's supposed to also work with Wayland. And it works in exactly the same way. Um, You press a keyboard shortcut and then you can warp the mouse pointer to a different part of the screen. You can also use um, shortcuts for moving the mouse pointer around, just like you could on the Amiga. (laughs) And there's an additional mode. They call it hint mode. And this works like cute browser. You press a keyboard shortcut and the screen is filled with small little shortcuts. Press those keyboard shortcuts and the pointer goes directly to that point that had the shortcut. I use it all the time. I, I use the trackball or the mouse, but often if I'm, I've got my keys on the keyboard, and th- especially with the nature of this keyboard, it's diff- it's a pain to move away all the time. It's actually quicker for dragging some windows around and doing some certain kinds of navigation without having to always remember keyboard shortcuts for things. Why don't you just use a tiling window manager, right? <laughs> I mean, I do partially, but I just don't have the memory for all the keyboard shortcuts. And sometimes I just like to use the mouse so this is a good compromise then yeah the funny thing about that grid thing is i wonder if that could work with sort of assistive software i've seen some of the kde stuff where you know you can highlight some of the words in various applications where you can press is it alter control i can't remember which yeah and it'll highlight it'll just make random shortcuts for you based on where you are but this almost looks like it could be a a better way of doing that yeah especially if you could talk to it dictate to it and if it's only letters like you'd assume that that would be easier uh I'm not sure how <laughs> it's all well of me saying that, but yeah, I don't know. You can define which characters are used for those shortcuts, so it doesn't even need to be letters if you don't want it to be. You could restrict it to just a set of numbers. It's great. I mean, I guess it's a specific use case, but I genuinely genuinely use it all the time. All right, Phelan, what is Waza? It's certainly nothing to do with uh, fancy boss pedals. Well, I would say it's called Wazoo, but 
equally, I don't know how to say it properly. And there is that connotation in English where something is up the wazoo, but I don't think that's where this goes. It's a poor choice of name, essentially. But it is essentially a, a SIEM tool, a massively complicated security scanning software that tells you vulnerabilities that you have, your attack surface, things like that, how set for the CIS benchmarks your various workstations are, uh, has an agent that you can install on your machines. It's all fully open source. And there's a, even a helpful uh, script that can install it on a VM for you or something like that if you want to try it out. It runs with the open distro backend, which is that free version of the Elasticsearch stack. And it's very powerful. And a lot of these types of tools are in the several hundred thousand range. And this is a fully open source one. And if you are looking for something like that, even if it's just in a demo lab or something like that, well worth looking into and contributing to if you can. Not very exciting. I have used it for years, but I mean, this is the boring end of FOSS software where you go, I wish there was some choice there. And uh, finally there is. And it's been around for a while, so it's not disappearing anytime soon. They seem to have like, they've got various cloud offerings and stuff, but you know, you can download this thing and run it yourself. It's very, very well done. All right. Well, my discovery is Arch install. So this is built into the Arch ISO. And I tried it when it first came out and it was a little bit rough around the edges. Now it is amazing. I went from downloading the ISO to having Arch with XFCE installed in about 15 minutes. You boot into the live session, you have to connect to Wi Fi if you're a Wi Fi pleb like me, and then you just run Arch install and then It's just a very simple text-based layout. You just pick all the options that you want and then it just goes and then you reboot and boom, you've got Arch. It's absolutely fucking brilliant. In 15 minutes, you could be telling everybody you run Arch. My God, (laughs) sign me up right now. And man, Arch is fast. I mean, Graham, you will uh, back me up here, but when you're used to an Ubuntu-based distro, which is totally fine, but Arch really is that little bit faster, I find. Yeah, I agree. It's only got what you want on it which is the main thing i think yeah i mean it's a bit annoying like i wanted to connect to bluetooth so i had to install Mm. loads of bluetooth stuff but that's the beauty of arch isn't it that you build it up to be whatever you want i mean i know this is not a revelation here but because it's so easy to install it makes it more attractive to me and it makes the so-called easy arch like manjaro and endeavor slightly less attractive to me now because why not just build it up exactly how I want it? Like, you can pick between Pulse Audio and Pipewire, for example, in the installer. And, you know, I've got a perfectly functional XFCE desktop. And, you know, that would normally take, I don't know, reading the wiki, it's been a while, it'd take me a good hour, I would have thought, to do it. I mean, Graham, you do it all the time, seemingly. How, How quickly can you do it? Honestly, not that often. And I do have to read the wiki and there's always something I've forgotten that I had to work around and then I should have written down somewhere. So I'm not that quick. It's got a lot quicker than it did in the very beginning where it probably took me a day or two, especially on the Mac that I used to have Arch on. Um, But no, it still takes me probably half an hour, an hour to do it. Yeah. Well, if you've got a spare machine to do it on or a VM or whatever and you want Arch for whatever reason, then it's a pretty compelling case for me. I've got another discovery, which is Dali Mini. I saw this floating around on Twitter today. So Dali is this weird AI thing where you just type in what you want and it just makes pictures of it. And uh, there's various videos on YouTube of it. But you have to join the closed beta of it or whatever. And I tried to sign up, but fuck knows when they're going to allow me access to it. 
But then I saw this Dali Mini today. Now, the GitHub says that it is MIT licensed, but I haven't checked whether any of the back end is not open source. I wouldn't imagine it can be fully open. But anyway, you can just go to this website, type in anything you want, and it'll just make you some pictures of it. Unfortunately, it seems to be getting quite popular and oversubscribed. And while it was working perfectly earlier, now it just keeps giving me errors that it's over capacity. Yep, same here. I managed to get one silly picture out of it earlier, but now I can't get it to do any more. Yeah, maybe try it in the middle of the night or something. I don't know. I do actually have a third one, and that is Twitter. Now, this is a bit hard to describe, but... From their About page, it says, Twitter.net is a challenge to see what awesomeness you can create when limited to 140 characters of JavaScript and a canvas. Give it a go. No. (laughs) I know you hate JavaScript, but this is just a bit of fun. And it's just these people, I don't know how they do it, but they're just with tiny amounts of code. They make these amazing animations with JavaScript. And some of them are interactive as well. You can like drag your mouse around. It's amazing. It's hard to describe on a podcast, but uh, click the link in the show notes, twitter.net, and they're called Dweets. I see what they did there. And it seems to all be open source as well, the website and everything. So uh, give it a look. I'm playing with it as you're speaking right now, Joe, and it's actually great. You're just editing other people's Dweets um, just to change the parameters and have them update the playback in real time. It's excellent. Yeah, and if you click the top link you'll see the most popular ones. And some of them are really amazing for that tiny amount of code. Yeah. Right. If, if you're having three, I'm having one more. And that is a cheat command, which is the man page that you've always wanted, i.e. the give me the thing to just do that thing. And uh, yeah, install that with snap install cheat if you want. Very good. Snap install? Oh, I don't know about that. It is just a, a Go application. You could download it and install it. But yeah, it's in snap anyway. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Linux After Dark. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. MD got in touch to say, you're probably going to get this a lot, but Barrier will not run on Wayland as the listener requested. They will have to use an X session. This was a couple of episodes ago we were talking about using a naked old laptop as a second screen. And yes, we did get quite a few people telling us this, so thanks for pointing that one out. We also had a free consulting question, the first one so far. So this is an idea stolen from Two and a Half Admins where people write in 
and try and get uh, supposedly expert advice, but I think we <laughs> might struggle with this one. It seems to combine quite a lot of different areas of uh, expertise. So this is from Mika, who says, I support a non-profit radio station in New Zealand. They need to keep a recording of their station's entire output for compliance purposes in case someone complains, etc. about a show's output. They also use this recording for podcasters who use the station's equipment to perform their show. However, it's been pretty unreliable. I inherited a Windows 10 box running a proprietary piece of software called Total Recorder, and it just randomly stops working sometimes, <laughs> often due to Windows updates. It's probably a radium crack. I'd like to recommend a Linux approach, preferably headless that records 24 hours, seven days a week, auto starts when the machine is turned on, rotates the audio log every hour, saves the stream in MP3 format to a local drive, can run a SyncThing client to sync that drive to a server on the LAN for later retrieval, and will send status notifications when something goes wrong, like a power outage or on boot, for example, the disk gets full or fails, etc. I know a lot of this can be done with FFmpeg, but I'd like more guidance than that, if possible. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. I think Nagios for the monitoring, because there's loads of plugins for that. So there's bound to be whatever we come up with for the rest of it, I would have thought Nagios will probably do the job for the monitoring. And can run a sync thing client, well, that just means it has to be a Linux box, which is probably what we would suggest anyway. So that's relatively straightforward. I have a thing that does something similar to this that runs my security cameras, which essentially is a very simple bash script that ironically enough runs FFmpeg mm -hmm. to pull the stuff from the camera and then convert it. But I, I split things up. So I record uh, a raw video H264 file, and then I have a separate job that, and I, I, I dump those out in, you know, whatever segments, five minute segments, whatever, because I don't want it to have broken at some point and then, you know, find out later that I've wasted several errors. So I chop that up as it dumps out. And that way you can use the advantage of, you know, running a script that does one thing, does it well. Um, and that, like, you can have the auto restart features system D to manage the recording script. And then the thing that might convert it to MP3 might be separate, but you do chunks of whatever half an hour or whatever you choose to sync. And that way you're getting stuff off of there separately. I mean, that's how I do it. I don't know if you mentioned this before, but I do something similar, but I use a tool called Monit. Have you mentioned this? Oh, Monit's very good, all right? Yeah. yeah, it's really simple. It's really easy to set up. It monitors processes. It starts them if they're not running and it restarts them if it notices they've failed. And I use it for like TV head end and things. When USB connections get lost or something restarts and it's out of my control on a Raspberry Pi, it's really low resource usage and it has a web interface where you can check the state of things and you can augment its configuration with really simple scripts and bash commands to add things like temperature or CPU monitoring. And the beauty of that is if an Agios system hasn't got a network or something has gone down there, but you're still able to record the audio because it's a separate channel, it's still able to monitor itself. I don't think there's going to be a simple GUI way to do this though, is there? You're going to have to string together a bunch of commands. You're going to have to write some bash scripts to do this. And that's what Linux is great at, is taking all these little tools and combining them together to make whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, SystemD gives you an awful lot of the service side plumbing of that, you know, where you can you can tell, you know, exit, start, you know, do a restart always and give it a little buffer of a few seconds if 
some device like a USB audio device has to become active or whatever. Uh, the hard thing would be if you are recording to a file, but you're recording silence because there's something wrong with the USB bus of your audio device or something like that, where you'd almost need to analyze the file to see there's not gibberish in there. But, uh, you know, make it as complicated as you want, but, you know, yeah. try to keep it as simple as you can as at first anyway. I think system D is a good option here because you can set a maximum runtime on a script as well. So you could slice your files up into hour-long segments quite easily. Something I would suggest is that you overlap the the end of one file and the start of the new file by at least a couple of minutes so that you don't end up with a with a gap between the recordings of a few seconds. And then to Phalem's point, I think look at the file size. If you're going to compress it to MP3, for example, and it is silent, then uh, you know your file size will be very small. I would guess that an hour's worth of audio would be about the same size if you compress it on average every hour. And so you could quite easily set a script to look at the file size. And if it's significantly below the size that you think it should be, then flag up some kind of warning. Well, hopefully that answered your question, Maker. So Jason writes in and he said he just listened to episode 177 with the white noise machine chat. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I wanted to share this one liner I found long ago. Instant warp core noise. And then he gives a long play command that just looks like gibberish and good luck with that. And oh, I see 86,400. That looks like a day. Okay, great. Maybe not. <laughs> it's more fun when you add an alias for engage equals command to dot bash rc dot z shush rc. Uh-huh. I can see I can see the caliber of people that you've you've <laughs> drawn in here in the pair of you. Fuck's sake. So this was when we were talking about my white noise machine, which uh, I adapted a script that was supposed to sound like the Star Trek bridge noise. And you can hear that now. And what Jason has sent in is more like the warp core noise. It's uh, got much less high end. It's much bassier. So let's hear that now. I think the latter one's more like pink noise or browning noise uh, with more low frequency energy and less high frequency energy. Yeah, well, it's all about the filters and that's what I played with. Like you can um, change the parameters in the script to tweak it to your speaker setup. I had it playing through my desktop speakers on my computer, which have got a decent sub connected to them. And I was very impressed. It does sound exactly like being on the bridge of the Enterprise, I would imagine. Right. The lot is, you all need help, but... If you'd listen to me and would install F-Droid, there's an application called Noice, N-O-I-C-E, and there is a brown, pink, and white noise <laughs> filter. And there's also things like beach at nighttime and a thunderstorm, which normal people might find enjoyable to listen to. Noice. <laughs> and it generates the brown note, you say. <laughs> Perfect for shit in the bed. <laughs> Well, I just like the, the I like Noisatron, and uh, you know when we turn it on, but I always say Noisatron engage. Funnily <laughs> enough, uh, even though I have to turn it on manually. But I, I just I don't know. I don't want like rain and yeah. Well, this one has it. It just has brown or white noise. If you want it, you don't need to do a command line. Yeah, but where's the fun in just installing an app when you can run a command? <laughs> Nothing says sleep like. 
<laughs> editing Bashar C. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this isn't running on a desktop machine or anything. This is running on a little pine board connected to a USB speaker right next to the bed. Put your phone beside you and use the command I told you. Jesus Christ. No, my phone speaker's shit. <sighs> like, I, I want a decent... This is like a little desktop speaker. It's just perfect. Fucking banging Olufsen's hi-fi and all it's doing is brown noise. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking, the Bjorn man has just exploded. You don't know, Nout. Daniel wrote in to say, I just wanted to give some feedback on episode 177 regarding the question of whether Linux's weakness is not updating enough. In my opinion, one of Linux's greatest strengths is that apps are not constantly being updated but many projects reach a point of completion where there really isn't much more to add. I think it's a modern trap that companies, especially Apple, have led consumers to make them think that things need to be constantly updated. In my own experience, all this leads to is shorter hardware life cycles, as invariably your machine eventually can't run the latest version anymore and you need to upgrade your whole machine. Normally, in Apple's case, at a very high price. Microsoft also does this with Windows. See Windows 11 for reference. The same was true of Vista. Only certain machines can run it. In reality, any machine that runs 7 can easily run 11, but Microsoft blocks the install so you get to buy new hardware. Same with Apple. They are perfectly good 5-plus-year-old Macs out there, which are now obsolete because their OS is no longer supported, and the third-party apps they run no longer update to the latest. Same with iPhone. iPhone 7 or 8 and older are now obsolete, yet you could slap a new battery in and the thing should easily run another five years, if only the OEM would support the software. On Linux, you can take an ancient PC, still running XP, and get it to run a light distro with ease, and it will run the latest and greatest apps too, not only the old versions. This is how computing should be. We shouldn't be obsoleting perfectly good hardware which costs people blood, sweat and tears, trees, water to produce, mining, melting, assembling, shipping, packaging, etc. So big kudos to Linux devs for not feeding the upgrade monster and instead focusing on finished software that just works even on ancient hardware. I do take a slight exception to the iPhone. Of course I do. Uh, I've got an iPhone 8. And I've just been nagged to upgrade to the latest version. So, you know, in fairness, Apple do a pretty good job of supporting their phone hardware longer than Android typically do as well. Yeah, Windows 11 is a joke. That, that's such an arbitrary sort of line in the sand that they're drawing there, and especially when they don't even make hardware. That's It's so weird. It's got to have been dictated by partners or whatever. Well, they do make hardware with the surfaces, but not that much yeah exactly but it's not like the laptops and stuff and yeah i think this is right i mean it's like that question of you know what's the most environmentally friendly car well it's the one you have right now because making it is you can't get that back it's all the work that gets involved yeah it's definitely one of the major selling points for linux is that even if your hardware gets abandoned by the major distros the ubuntu's and fedoras of the world there's still stuff like MX Linux and whatever the equivalent of that is in another 20 years. Which is funny because uh, one thing that you didn't mention, you were talking about on Linux After Dark abandoned software. One thing you didn't think of was the fact that Debian has an LTS version, which is supported by various companies who provide a financial contribution. Like I think there's a bronze, silver, gold level that you can pay. Mm. And that buys a certain amount of hours for those guys to keep going on like Debian 9 right now, which is on LTS. 
And that is one way that still keeps going. And you're actually providing money to open source developers there as well, which is quite cool. So Yeah, and similarly with Ubuntu as well. I mean, that's a totally different scale, but you can pay for the advantage thing and get up to 10 years of support rather than just the free five years. And that is a good point that, in theory at least, you can always pay someone to work on it, even if they're just an independent contractor, which you can't really do with uh, proprietary software, which is kind of what we talked about. Yeah. Good plug, Phelan. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we probably will be talking about what's been going on in the open source and Linux world. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Bart. I've been Graham. (laughs) And I've been Will. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) 